Our scripture reading this morning to be found in the Gospel of Luke. You have a copy of the scriptures with you, I trust. Come with me and follow with me as I read in your hearing from this 18th chapter and breaking into the chapter at verse 9, reading from verse 9 to the end of verse 14. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, and verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. May God bless to us this morning this portion of his word. Let us pray together. Our Father, we would bow our heads in your presence. We would close our eyes as a display of the fact that you alone are worthy and that you alone are holy and just and righteous in all that you are and in all that you do. You are the God who is mighty over all, the God who is faithful to his people, the God who keeps his word, the God who works wonders. You are the God who has made this world in which we live and move and have our being. You're the God who controls all things. In light of who you are, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And yet, our Father, we thank you that you have called us to come and to know you, and to lean on you, 
and to trust in you and to hope in you and to walk day by day in the light of your word, standing upon your promises and knowing your presence. You are good, as we have been singing. You are great in your might and in your mercy, glorious in your grace. And so, our Father, we, we bow before you, aware of what we are, aware, our Father, of our failures, our faithlessness, our frailty. O oh God, like the prophet of old who saw you high and lifted up, we too must cry out, unclean, unclean. Woe is me, for mine eyes have seen the King. O oh, our Father, as we ponder who you are and meditate upon who you are, we see how far short we have fallen. That again, O oh God, we must confess that we have sinned against you and against one another, that we have not loved you as we ought, and we have lo not loved our neighbor as we ought. And therefore, as we come to you, we're conscious of our sinfulness. And yet we thank you that you are a pardoning God. But who is a pardoning God like thee, who has grace so rich and free? And as we've already been singing this morning, there is that cleansing flood, the blood that was shed at Calvary, and we can be washed in the blood of the Lamb. And so we come for that cleansing power. We confess that we have fallen short of your glory once more, but again we look to you, the God who is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we come to you again this morning, our Father, bringing our burdens, bringing our concerns, bringing our anxieties to you, because we thank you that we come to you just as we are, that though we focus upon you and we come to worship you, we come with all of our baggage. Father, those anxious thoughts that we entertain, those worries that even now we recognize and feel and know, those burdens that we bear, those situations that await us when we leave this building today, our Father, those things which will confront us this coming week. Father, we are people who worry and become anxious. We're wondering what's going on in this world, what's happening in this world. We see the degradation, we see the depravity, we see what's happening on our families. Our Father, we bring them all to you. We do not leave them outside the door. We, we come as full human beings to you, casting our care upon you. For you care for us. And you know us altogether. We cannot pretend to be other than we are with you. And we rejoice that you are glorified as you work for your people. 
as they cast their burdens upon you. That delights your heart because then you manifest your grace. You manifest your power. You show to us your faithfulness. You show that you are a God who is near and not afar off. And so we come, our Father, each one, and just take a moment of silence and quietness to acknowledge before you those things that even this moment are on our minds and in our hearts. And we bring them, our Father, to you knowing that you are the God who knows us and the God who is sufficient for us. And thus, our Father, we pray for our world, for this nation of what, which we are a part. And we ask, O oh God, have mercy upon us, we pray, for we are a godless people. We are a sinful people, O God. We do not as a nation acknowledge you or confess you or recognize our need of you. And so pardon we ask. And as you have done in the history of this world, may it please you to come in your reviving power and turn hearts to yourself that a nation might rise up that acknowledges you and worships you and praises your name. Forgive the sins of this nation. Those who would lead us, humble them under your mighty hand. That they might recognize that they are but men and women who one day will have to stand and give an account of what they have done with the power that you've granted to them. So hear these our prayers. Watch over our loved ones this day. Wherever they are, whatever they're doing, they're not with us. But, oh God, make, meet them and minister to them, each as they have need. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This morning I want to continue to explore the words of the 23rd Sam in light of that 15th chapter of Luke's gospel. We began last week uh, unpacking that story that Jesus tells and recorded for us there in that 15th chapter and how it relates to this 23rd Sam. As I pointed out that uh, Luke would seem to be recording a sermon that Jesus gives on this 23rd Psalm, a sermon that's comprised of three parts. That is in Luke 15, the lost sheep, which takes us from verse 4 through 7, and then the lost silver from verse 8 through 10, and then the lost sons that begins in verse 11 and takes you right through to the end of that chapter, verse 32. Now, while our Lord's sermon throws light on the, the, the whole of that 23rd Psalm, it, it does focus sharply, though, on the fifth verse of Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. As we, we read that psalm and as we look at that portion of Luke's gospel, we see that both the, the good shepherd 
And the gracious host relate to what we find there in Psalm 23. We see the, the figure of the father in Jesus' story. We see the, the father as the, the shepherd bringing the lost younger son home. And we then see him being that host preparing a table for him in the midst of much celebration and rejoicing. The similarity between Psalm 23 and Luke 15 then goes further as we recognize and deal with and consider the term enemies. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Who is Jesus referring to? Who are the enemies in Jesus' sermon in Luke 15? Well, consider with me this morning, first of all, uh, the context that informs us. The context that informs us. I'm taking you to the first three verses of Luke 15. And I trust you've got scripture with you to consider these words with me. You see, here we see the, the, the makeup of the, the congregation that Jesus is addressing. As I'm speaking to you, as I look around this room, I, I, I see all forms of people here. You all come with different backgrounds, uh, displaying different behaviors. Well, what was the, the makeup of Jesus' congregation? Well, you have on the one hand, we're told, the tax collectors and the sinners. On the other hand, you have the Pharisees and the scribes. Jesus' congregation here is made up of the, those from the lowest stratum of society and those regarded as being from the highest stratum of society. That here is, as it were, the poorest of the poor and the elite of society. Here in this congregation before Jesus are those who are the down-and-outs, as well as the up and outs, the tax collectors and the sinners, the Pharisees and the scribes. And one group have, have come to Jesus and they've come to listen to his words. But the other group have come to judge and complain. So what was their complaint? Verse 2, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. A a an action unthinkable to these Pharisees. For they regarded these despised tax collectors and these immoral sinners as being unclean. And so to eat with them would mean defilement. 
It would jeopardize their purity. Thus the Pharisees, a word meaning separatist, insisted that as long as they had their meals in isolation, they could maintain their ritual purity. These Pharisees and scribes were therefore contemptuous of Jesus. For to them, his acceptance of these people, his association with these people, his ability, as it were, to eat with these people, only encouraged, they believed, loose morals and a lowering of the standard. Didn't Jesus know what kind of people these tax collectors and sinners were? Surely they recognized, surely they considered and concluded that if Jesus really knew what kind of people they were, he would have nothing to do with them. They complained because he would eat and drink with these tax collectors and sinners. And so we see not only their complaint, but we also see something of their contempt for the Savior. It's brought out in that second verse of chapter 15. This man, their words of contempt, this, this man, it's, it's a derogatory term. This man, this, this carpenter's son, who in the world does he think he is? This, it's, it's almost, uh, in the original, the word man's not there. This, 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 this being, who does he think he is? There is nothing but contempt for Jesus and a callousness to the condition of the common person. Now it's within that context, it's against that background, and with his eyes fixedly firmed on the Pharisees and scribes, that Jesus' story now continues where he focuses upon the older son in the story. Last week it was the young son who ran away from home, but who came back, the one to whom the father ran and brought home and embraced. But Jesus tells us that there was a man who had two sons. And so we come to this older son from verses 25 through 32. And from the context that informs us about the congregation, we see the conduct that inspects us. The conduct that inspects us. As we look at this older son, I want you to notice, first of all, his angry reaction. 
He hears the report of the servant. And in verse 28, we read these words. But he was angry. He was angry and he will not go in and celebrate with the father and with his brother and with the friends. He became angry. He was not about to sit down with the proverbial tax collectors and sinners. And he certainly was not going to go in and sit down with one who had been with prostitutes and pigs. No, no, no. He was not going to lower his standards. He was going to maintain his dignity. He was going to remain and, 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 and keep his respectability. He was going to maintain his purity. He was angry. And following that reaction of anger, we read of his arrogant rejection of his father. Because the father leaves the celebration and he goes outside to plead with this older son to come in and join the party. Now, culturally, such action by the father was embarrassing and insulting. For the guests at the celebration could feel that their, that their host had something better to do than entertain and enjoy them. Surely they were the ones with a greater priority. They were the ones who should be looked after by the father. They were the ones the father should be focusing upon. But by going out from the party to the older son, the father is once again doing the unexpected and the unwarranted. He endures further shame and humiliation in order to reconcile with this son just as he had earlier with the younger son in leaving the home and running through the streets to the son. In both occasions, you see, he goes outside. In both occasions, he is willing to cross culture. Once again, he's willing to bear shame for the sake of his sons. To quote Kenneth Bale in his work on this chapter, he said, it is almost impossible to convey the shock that must have reverberated through the banquet when the father deliberately left his guests, humiliated himself before all, and went out to the courtyard to try to reconcile his older son. And yet, despite the actions and attitude of the father, despite his, his passion and his pleading, this son stood his ground, unmoved, unwilling, unchanged. And tragically, we hear his aggressive 
resentment towards his father. His reply to the father is brought out from verse 29 and 30. There's no, there's no respect for him. Listen, listen to those words. He answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never give me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me. Isn't it interesting that when you read the text here, you see a difference between the younger son and the older son. In the sense that the younger son uses the term and he thinks in terms of the father. When I go back to the father, I will say to my father, but here the older son never mentions the word father. It's just you, you, you. What's the son's problem? What's he claiming? Listen to his words. I have never disobeyed your orders. I've never disobeyed. Implying the other son, your other son, he's prodigal. I'm perfect. I'm perfect. What's he revealing? The very thing you get in that 18th chapter that I read in your hearing of the Pharisee praying. He claims perfection here. And yet in reality, he's bringing shame to his father. But he's not concerned about the father, he's concerned about himself. He sees himself as perfect. And then he charges the father with favoritism. You never gave me a young goat. And then, and don't miss this, this miss this. When this son of yours, he can't even bring himself to say, my brother. And then there's unjustified defamation. He says, who devoured your property with prostitutes. Who told him that? It's not recorded in the story. You see, what is this older son implying? Just this. I would never do that. I, I would never be guilty of immorality. I am perfect. He sees himself as the righteous son. But who is he in the mind of Jesus? You see, who is Jesus depicting here in this story? Who's he looking at? Who's he speaking of here? Who is the older son? The Pharisees and the scribes. The hypocrites, 
the enemy without. He's prepared a table for the younger son. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. The enemy's just outside the gate. He's in the courtyard. The Pharisees and the scribes. What characterized these men? Well, their religion was entirely external and formal. There was no heart to it. So this, this son, as I've drawn your attention to already, he says, I, I never disobeyed your command. And yet in saying that and stating that and taking his position, he's bringing shame upon the father. He's got no heart, no compassion for the father. What was Jesus' message to the Pharisees? Because he spoke to them often. And it was this very fact that they don't have a heart. Remember his term on that occasion? You're a whitened sepulchers. There's nothing within. And furthermore, they were more concerned for the ceremonial and the traditional than the moral and the compassionate. You read Matthew chapter 15, where Jesus charges the Pharisees for using ceremonial regulations to evade the basic duty of helping and honoring their parents. They didn't even have the natural compassion of caring for their parents. The ultimate object of the Pharisee was not to glorify God, but themselves. The Pharisee praying in the temple, it was all about him. There was no worship of God. It was actually an insult to God. We look at this older son and see his attitude towards others, totally self-centered, self-pleasing, and self-congratulating. So what is the difference between a Pharisee and a Christian? What's the difference? Well, I can do no better than quote Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his work, The Sermon on the Mount. He says this, the Christian is a man or woman who exemplifies the Beatitudes. They are poor in spirit. They are meek, merciful, not satisfied because they've performed one task prescribed, but no, they're hungering and they're thirsting after righteousness. They long to be like Christ. And my friends, that's the test by which we must judge ourselves. Because the spirit of the Pharisee lives in each one of us. We all at times manifest that spirit. Pride in our performance. Thanking God that we are not like that other person. But listen, holiness does not just mean the mere avoidance of certain things or thinking certain things. It's our attitude of heart towards God, loving Him and others, including, if I may say, our fathers 
and mothers. The last time I looked, there's no used by date on honoring our fathers and our mothers. So here's the older son, the Pharisee, standing outside, refusing to go in. So how does the story finish? Verses 31 and 32, the affectionate response of the father. Did this son turn and join the father and enter the party? Or did he stand his ground? Isn't it interesting that Jesus does not tell us? He doesn't tell us. We're not told. The final remarks of the father are a passionate, pastoral, personal appeal. And while directed to the older son, we must remember the context. For these were Jesus' words to those self-satisfied, self-righteous hypocrites who were opposing his message and his ministry. Jesus is speaking here to the Pharisees and scribes. And he was telling them clearly in no uncertain terms why he received it with tax collectors and sinners. Because he was motivated by mercy. His heart had a, a loving concern for needy people. And thus, as one commentator put it, did they now understand? Did they now realize that until they learn to welcome sinners and until they learn why they must do this and rejoice doing this, they would forever remain estranged from their heavenly Father. Unless they had a heart, the stone taken out and flesh revealed, they'd stay in the hypocrisy and sin. The story is left unanswered. Because in a sense, it's left up to you and to me to finish the story. Because who are we in the story? We may be like the younger son. We may also be like the older son. And Jesus speaks to us. And how do we respond? Do we stand without? Or we come within? The context that informs us, the conduct that inspects us, and so finally, the consequence that impacts us. Because what lesson is here for us from the story? Well, let me give you two things and I'm done. And the first is this. We see here the blindness which is caused by sin. The blindness that is caused by sin. How does Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 4.4? The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. How does Jesus picture that? Well, look at the Pharisees. You know, if you were to go to Luke 5, you'd read these words. And Jesus answered them, that is the Pharisees and scribes, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, 
but sinners to repentance. What is Jesus saying here? The assumption of the Pharisees is that they are righteous. They assume that they are saved. They assume that God approves of them, but he doesn't approve of the tax collectors and sinners. And therefore, Pharisees don't need to be found. Pharisees believe they are not lost. They are not lost. That isn't what the Lord thought. It was definitely what the Pharisees thought. It was their point of view. And here in Luke 5, the Lord was not saying that the the Pharisees were actually well and don't need a doctor. Rather, what he's saying here is the Lord's point he was making here was that the Pharisees thought they were well and didn't need a doctor. And so long as they had that mindset, Jesus could be of no interest or value or use to them. And it's the same here in Luke 15. The beginning of the story where Jesus talks about the 99 and the one that's lost. Who's the 99? It's the Pharisees who think themselves safe and secure and saved. They don't need a seeking savior. They don't need a father to come and bring them home or invite them in. Because they did not imagine for a moment that they were lost. They never saw themselves for a moment being outside. Here was their blindness and peril. They were lost. And they didn't know it. To quote the old saying, there are none so blind as those who will not see. And listen, my friends, no one is as lost as the person who doesn't know that he or she is lost. For the Pharisee, And for most people, even today, salvation, going to heaven, lies within a person's power to achieve. And you hear it constantly. That public figure, that sports star, that movie star who who dies, And what's said of them? They're in heaven. They're playing golf in heaven. They're singing their songs in heaven. Heaven is taken as a given. There was no worship of them. They didn't worship the Lord while here on earth. But it's assumed that their right is for heaven. People, including Pharisees, have no sense of the holiness of God or the immensity of their own sin. And thus they have no interest in Jesus. They have no interest in Christianity. 
because Christianity is the religion of the broken heart and the contrite spirit. So let me ask you this morning. Have you ever seen yourself as being lost? Have you ever recognized and realized that you need a savior? That heaven is not just your right. Are you inside with Jesus celebrating? Or are you outside in the courtyard arguing? The blindness of sin is a terrible thing. Because it will send you to hell. When all the time you think you're going to heaven. But notice also. The second thing I would put to you. The beauty of the Savior. The beauty of the Savior. Because who is the father in the story? If, if the tax collectors and sinners. Are the sinners of this world. The Pharisees. The, are the, the hypocrites of this world. Who is the father? Who is the father? Because in a sense, he's the main character in the story. That's all about him. Well, let me ask you this. Who has come to seek and to save that which is lost? Who has come to give sight to the blind and open the eyes and open the ears my friends, the Father is Jesus himself. It's all about him. Amazingly, it's about Christ and him crucified. For what a picture is painted here. He subjects himself to shame and ignominy for the sake of others. He endures public humiliation. He exposes himself to ridicule and all to secure the salvation of sinners. The cross is not spoken of here, but it's all over the story. Fully implied here is Calvary. The words of the 22nd Psalm, scorned, despised by the people, a company of evildoers encircles me. This is Luke 15. And here we see the fullness of grace. A grace, as it were, that empties itself of all but love. That bearing shame and scoffing rude, he leaves the glories of heaven and he comes to earth and he runs to sinners and he greets them and he welcomes them and he embraces them and he pardons them and he brings them home to the Father's house where for eternity they rejoice and celebrate together. And there's the freeness of grace. Because he saves all who will come to him. It doesn't matter whether your background is a Pharisee and a scribe. You're a tax collector and sinner. Whosoever will may come. And there's the fact of his grace. Because salvation is by grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. 
And it's a pardon freely offered without preconditions. Because, beloved, isn't it it wonderful that, that Jesus calls and invites and draws to himself and calls not upon humble sinners, not upon contrite sinners, not even upon repentant sinners. He calls sinners of every stripe and color. There's no qualification, my friends, to his grace. For the gospel of grace is the gospel of Christ himself. Because, to put it simply, Christ is the gospel. Christ is the gospel. And that's why I borrowed that title from my sermon this morning. That equation that Christ plus nothing equals everything. Christ plus nothing equals everything. So do you know him? Have you known his drawing power, bringing you to faith in him? Because, beloved, the wonderful thing is, even today, he seeks and he saves. He goes out after the prodigal, the younger sons. And he still goes out and searches for the older brother. Older brother. I had an older brother. An older brother who caused me more grief than anyone else. It was one of those things brought up in the same family, Sunday school, church, background, but a brother to my brother, in a sense, kicked over the traces and as he grew. And he became a businessman, a successful yet ruthless businessman in Sydney. And when we'd come to Melbourne, He'd invite me to meet with him for breakfast at his hotel. And he keeps saying, brother, when are you going to wake up to yourself? When are you going to get rid of this religious nonsense? Don't you know you've got a wife and you've got children to look after? You know, it was all right when you were young to, and this religious thing going to church, but, you know, isn't a time that you woke up and got a life and took responsibility for yourself and it'd be the same and the same and the same. I said, what do you do with brothers like that? Well, you pray for them. Just as you're praying, I'm sure, for your families. So, Christian and I, we would pray and we'd pray week after week, month after month, year after year. And then something started to happen. His older daughter became a Christian. She invited her mom to know your Bible class study for the ladies in church. And she became a Christian. And she'd come home. And she'd ask my brother some questions because she knew John, at least, had had a, a religious background, a church background. And so when she couldn't answer the question, she'd answer, ask him. And if he couldn't answer, he'd call me and ask me the question. His wife got converted. And then I got a call one day that he was very ill. I needed big operation. 
And so he rang and said, will you pray for me? And we said, John, we've always been praying for you. And what should we continue to do? And then sometime later, the, the operation was a success. He called me and he said, brother, I've become a Christian. I've become a Christian. And I didn't believe him. <laughs> he was such a scoundrel, such a con artist, that I thought, brother, what are you up to this time? And God forgive me, I'd been praying for years and I didn't even believe. And I said, brother, that's wonderful. We need to meet. I was doubting Thomas. I thought, until I see this myself. And we met halfway between Sydney and Melbourne for a weekend. And I examined him and I looked at him and I talked with him and everything. And I came away from there rejoicing that God had indeed saved him, my older brother. I had the joy of baptizing him and his wife carrying by Baptist Church in Sydney. And when I was about to baptize my brother, he said to the congregation, he said, please, please keep an eye on this. And he'd, because if you see the bubbles arising uh, from the water, because I've treated him so roughly, this is his opportunity for the payback. Please be prepared to run and rescue me. <laughs> that was my other brother. And what happened afterwards? He lost everything. Business, home, houses, everything. And the last time we met, him and his wife were living in a one-bedroom little bungalow kind of thing on a farmer's property. That's all they could have. And we walked together. And he said, brother, you know, we have nothing. But we've never been happier in all of our lives. We've never been happier. And he passed into glory not that long after that. How wonderful that your shepherd still seeks the lost. And if you've got family and relatives, I'm sure you have because we've got them all over the world that we're praying for. Some of them are missionaries' kids and they're nowhere spiritually. And we pray that this God who ran through the streets to find this ragamuffin and who went out to the courtyard to talk to the hypocrite, he's still today seeks the wanderer. Can I encourage you? Keep on looking to him, that he will do what we cannot do for his own name's sake. Amen. We pray. Father, thank you that you're such a God that sometimes we pray and we don't believe. But we thank you that you are a faithful God and a miracle-working God and a God who seeks and saves to the uttermost. And that we can bring our family members, some may be near, others afar, but wherever they are, we thank you, Father, that we can bring them to you and we can ask, go to them, O God. Search them out, O God. Open their eyes, O God and cause them to come and celebrate with us the wonders of your love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.